Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Midtown Schuyler Bookstore. Thank you for joining us in Harrisburg this evening. Uh, we're so pleased to have you here at the Schuyler. Um, tonight, I have the honor of introducing our speaker this evening, Dr. Randy Epstein. Dr. Epstein is a medical writer, lecturer at Yale University, and professor at Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. Her articles have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Daily Telegraph, the Guardian, among many other newspapers and magazines. Dr. Epstein has earned a BS from the University of Pennsylvania. She has earned an MS from Columbia University and an MD from Yale University School of Medicine. She lives in New York City. Of course, we'll all hear for uh, tonight for her provocatively titled new book, Aroused, The History of Hormones and How They Control Just About Everything. Um, Science News calls the book an invaluable guide, and Kirkus Reviews calls it a poignant survey of what makes us human from the inside out. Huge thank you to Dr. Epstein for taking time out of her busy schedule to join us in Harrisburg. So without further ado, please join me in giving her a warm Harrisburg welcome. Thank you, thank you very much for coming out. It's my first time to Harrisburg. I went to Penn undergrad, so I, I know Philadelphia, but I've never been out here, so this is great. Um, I wanna start off with a little quiz and I meant to bring extra paper, but it's just three questions, and there's a prize for the winner. So we're gonna do the honor system. If there's one winner, then I'm just gonna hand you the prize. If a few people raise their hand, you're gonna have to write down your name on a scrap piece of paper, and I'm gonna pull it out of the hat because there's only one prize. And the rest of you will be losers, even if you got them all right. So three questions, you can either jot down, multiple choice, jot down your answers, or remember them. First question, the word hormone comes from the Greek word A, gland, B, aroused, C, secretion. I'll repeat it, the word hormone comes from the Greek word for A, gland, B, aroused, C, secretion. So think A, B, or C in your head, remember that. Next question, ready to move on? In the 1990s, scientists discovered that fat cells, A, secrete hormones, B, disintegrate with gluten-free diets, C, can be eliminated with a high-fat diet. Again, in the 1990s, scientists discovered that fat cells secrete hormones, B, disintegrate with gluten-free diets, or C, can be eliminated with a high-fat diet. So mark your answer. And the final question. In 1873, Lydia Pinkham developed the first popular cure for symptoms of menstruation and menopause. The active ingredient in this popular remedy, A, estrogen derived from horse urine, B, alcohol, or C, a non-hormone anti-anxiety. So the first popular remedy, I'm not saying it worked, but it, was a made, it made her a lot of money. Lydia Pinkham in 1873, the main ingredient of this menopause menstrual cramp cure was estrogen derived from horse urine, alcohol, or C, a non-hormone anti-anxiety. That's the whole quiz. So let's go through the answers now. The word hormone comes from the Greek word. Anyone want to yell out what they thought? 
be aroused. Yes, right, because it's the name of my book, and we'll get to how I got that. B. 1990s, scientists discovered fat cells. They, A, oh no, we're going to have a lot of winners, secrete hormones, yes. And C, the first popular nostrum for menstruation and menopause, the active ingredient was, oh, we're getting a mix. B, alcohol. Anybody get them all right? No one got them all right? Anyone get two? A lot of people got two out of three, right? Okay, if you got two out of three, do you have, a, whoever, do you have paper with you? Write your name on a piece of paper and send them up. Um, yeah, Lydia Pinkham, I'll just tell you, she um, was a housewife turned wildly rich woman because she basically put alcohol in a bottle and put a really medicinal label on it and said it cured cancer, constipation, menstrual cramps, menstruation. It probably did make a lot of people feel a lot better. And, and it, it sold for about 100 years. So much so, even now, how wacky we are things. If you Google Lydia Pinkham's remedy, there's still people selling stuff. But I don't think that probably doesn't have alcohol anymore because you're not allowed to do that. Um, but let's see. I'll give, out, I'll give out the prize, and then I'll start my little talk. Okay, okay, we'll do this. I don't have a hat, I'm just gonna mix these up. Now here, okay, let's just have, we'll make it fair. And you get, it's my own homemade Lydia Pinkham, it actually is straight bourbon made from New York City. It will make you feel better. <laughs> I have to say, this was almost harder than writing my book, was finding a label and then figuring out how to get it. Like, first it came out of Earth's Pie 11. Like, it took me a while to figure out on my computer how to actually get it and glue it on. So, enjoy. <laughs> I'm not claiming, I just, one disclaimer, I did once make a joke saying when I had a woman win, it will take the edge off menopause. And I got someone in the audience really angry that I said that. So she said, all alcohol is dangerous, and you shouldn't have said that. But for some people, a little bit might take the edge off menopause. Um, so I want to begin with a story about my grandma. When I was a kid in Yonkers, which is a little north of Manhattan, a suburb north of Manhattan, in the 1960s, I spent a lot of time with my grandma in her pool club in, um, in Yonkers. And we'd go in the summer, my siblings and I, we'd, lie in the, we'd play in the pool, we'd hang out. My grandmother and her three friends would sit at a table under this, un, like in a canopy kind of thing, in the shade, smoking Ken cigarettes and playing canasta. My sister and I did what you did in the 1960s. You know, we really wanted to get tan. So we took an album cover, we put aluminum foil around it, put our chins in it, and then coated ourselves with baby oil. My sister, by the end of the day, would have a decent tan. I would burn to a crisp, as you could tell, and the next day I'd just be pale. 
But here's the thing. Grandma Martha, despite being hidden by the sun's rays, had the most gorgeous copper color. We were mystified. How did Grandma do it? She was just smoking cigarettes in the shade all day. And we were kind of envious. She just had this beautiful bronze tan. It wasn't until years later that we realized that Grandma did not have an enviable aptitude for sunbathing. She had a hormone ailment. Grandma had Addison's disease. Her body didn't produce enough cortisol. We think now about cortisol as a stress hormone, but you also need cortisol to maintain blood pressure for your immune system. So people with Addison's disease suffer from extreme fatigue, nausea, and low blood pressure. It also darkens the skin. When I was a kid, I didn't know much about her disease, except that John F. Kennedy had the same thing, which made it seem like a very presidential thing to catch. And when I have a screen available, I actually got, have a picture of my grandmother with a cigarette in like her whatever like her robe that she wore around the house, no bra, not looking her best, sitting at a kitchen table smoking a cigarette, and then I have John F. Kennedy on the side. I'll tell you, the first couple book talks I gave, there were horrific thunderstorms the night of my book talk, and I actually said to my relative, like, Grandma is watching down on us. She is so not happy of this picture that I have of her. Like, there was just torrential downpours. and But so far, we're good. We have no picture. We're just saying that. So... But my memory throughout my life wasn't anything about grandma having a hormone ailment. I just remember my mother saying, Ma, don't forget to take your cortisone pill. There was one in the morning and one in the afternoon. I didn't even realize that Addison's had anything to do with hormones because to me growing up, hormones were your boobs and your period and sex and that was it. But hormones are so much more. They're potent chemicals that control metabolism, behavior, sleep, mood, and the immune system. When I delved into the history of hormones, I wasn't even thinking about my family history. The reason why I wrote this book is because the last century has been one of incredible discovery, but also outrageous claims. Consider this. When grandma was born in 1900, the word hormone didn't even exist. By the time she was diagnosed in the 1970s, scientists had a way to spot her hormone defect down to the billionth of a gram. I'm not a numbers person, my husband is, and when I would sort of spew things about my book during the whole time I was working on it, like it became, you know, that we'd say, what do you want to do on a Saturday night? You want to go for dinner? I'd say, sure, but I just did all this great research. I may just talk about it all dinner, or we could go to the movies. We saw a lot of movies. But when I told him about this woman who discovered, because it was a woman, how to, how to measure hormones down to the billionth of a gram, he was like, I don't think you need a, mean a billionth, because I don't even think you realize what a billionth is. He's right. I don't realize what a billionth is, but he's wrong. It, she did, we can measure hormones down to the billionth of a gram, which is like measuring a teardrop in an ocean. And I can't even appreciate that, because I actually don't know what a billionth is, but it's correct. Um, I'm gonna be telling you about the woman who devised this technique that allowed doctors to measure hormones. Just like grandma, she was a woman from New York City in the middle years of the 20th century who doted on her kids and made home-cooked meals. 
Unlike my grandma, she got a Nobel Prize and she revolutionized 20th century medicine. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So I just wanna, before I get into one of the stories from my book, I have one more question, but there's no prize. But feel free to answer for your own self-awareness, of acknowledgement of this. You know, we forget, because we talk about hormones all the time now, but the cool thing about hormones is, like there's so many different ones, there's hundreds of them, and there's so many different glands that produce hormones, the pituitary, adrenals, ovaries, testes, and yet they're one field. You know, it used to be more than 100 years ago that the adrenal guys didn't talk to the testes guys who didn't talk to the ovary guys. And if you had said to these doctors in the 1880s, you're all gonna be one field called endocrinology, it would be like saying to a dentist and a neurosurgeon, you're gonna be one field now. So it wasn't until 1905 that we came up with the name hormone and that someone said, here's this unifying theory. And does anyone wanna shout out what the definition, there is a simple definition. It's not like moody, it's not this, but there's a simple definition of what a hormone is. Any, or a letter or a word or anything that it might be. Anyone? Hmm? Exactly. Well, arousing has to do with it. So the definition is just um, a chemical spewed from one gland that hits a faraway target. That's all a hormone is. And what do we need by faraway? Like head to ovary or adrenal gland, which is near your kidneys, to your head. And now we think, okay, well, they hit cell receptors. That makes sense because we're used to hearing all those theories. But in 1905, the thinking was that everything, every message in the body had to travel along nerves. It made sense, like train tracks. And when these doctors came up with this theory, it was like, I mean, I think hormones are like your internal Wi-Fi. Another thing I actually don't understand, I can't even turn my television on, but I do know hormones, I just don't know Wi-Fi. But I do think, like, if I'm, if I'm sending an email, I hope that it only gets to that target and no one else along the way. And that's sort of the way hormones work. Like your oxygen goes through your blood. And so you could say, well, other things travel like that. But oxygen sort of, you know, wherever it's knocked about along the way will get used. Hormones travel through the blood, but they're not going to stop at any place. They go to their specific target. So now we think, okay, no big deal. 1905 was a huge deal. A lot of people didn't believe it. And they thought, no, it can't possibly. There must be nerves there. You just don't see them. We didn't have good imaging techniques. I mean, I probably wouldn't have believed the theory then anyhow. Everyone kept saying there are tiny nerves. There's tiny nerves out of your pancreas. There's tiny nerves because it's impossible to get a message otherwise. Um, anyhow, they turned out to be right. But then this doctor, British scientist, needed a name for the hormones. Well, they didn't name them. They needed a name for these chemicals. They had been called internal secretions. And he said, as you said, no, they're not just internal secretions. They excite. They arouse. So he went to um, a friend of his who taught at Cambridge University and said, what doctors do, I need something from the Greek, because we like these highfalutin terms. What's a Greek word that means to excite or to arouse? And his friend said, why don't you do something along the lines of hormoa? So he did. So he gave a lecture that night and said, you know, hormones as we shall call them. And because it was a meeting of doctors, it wasn't like everyone sat in the audience and said, great, good idea, we'll go with that one. No, there were other people that said, I have a better idea. One doctor raised his hand and said, um, 
How about autocoid? Because that means like internal drug, which is kind of a cool thing. But my theory, and there's no proof of this, but my theory is that someone at the time was like, eh, if we go with autocoid, that means 100 years from now, people are going to say, ugh, I feel so autocoidal. And that will sound weird. Hormonal sounds normal, so we'll just go with that. So they did, and it became hormone. Then, so that was 1905. 2018, I needed a title for my book, because some of the ones I had, my publisher didn't think were that catchy. So I emailed a friend of mine who's really good at titles, and she's an, an author also. And she, she also named Caramel Sutra, you know, the um, Ben and Jerry's flavor, which you can do. And if you actually give them the ingredients or, you know, say the flavors and a really good title, which I've tried to do, but I couldn't do it, um, you have the self-satisfaction of knowing that it's your title. So that's what she has. So she named Caramel Sutra. So I said to her, I need a name for my book. Norton doesn't like any of my names. And she said, well, what does the word hormone mean? And I emailed back, aroused. She's like, well, that's your title. Then another friend on the email loop was like, well, that's misconstruing. It's not, you have a little sex. You have some sex, some libido, but it's not the whole book. And I was like, but that's aroused means to excite. It also means to wake up in the morning. You know, that's your mistake if you're going to call it the book aroused. So we went with aroused. Um, and a few weeks later, I was actually with a group of friends, and we were talking about my title, because people then did like it. And I was explaining how I came up with it. And my friend was like, no, actually, I came up with it. And I said, I don't think so. I think I did. And she's like, no, I saved all the emails. So then she forwarded back to me the whole email chain, which you can now do. Since we don't talk, we do everything in written. So she actually did. It was her title. But I could see, like, I was just like, maybe as I typed the word aroused, I thought. And I actually, yeah, I was there giving her the title. So we heard about my grandma, and I want to tell you a few other stories, but I want to read to you a few pages of my book. Um, bear with me, because it sounds like it has nothing to do with hormones, but it will, I promise. That's all I'm going to tell you about this, that it will have to do with hormones, and I'm just going to read a few pages. And it has to do with a murder. On May 21st, 1924, two Chicago teenagers tried to get away with murder. Nathan Leopold, or Babe as he was called, was 19. Richard Dickey Leopold was 18. They were both students at the University of Chicago, born and raised nearby in one of the most exclusive neighborhoods in town. That afternoon, they left their college campus rented a car and drove to the Harvard School, an elite private boys' school which they had both attended. Then they waited. The two had schemed for months and thought they had covered every angle to avoid suspicion. They knew, for instance, not to drive Babe's Red Willie's night car. That would be a, a dead giveaway. So they decided to rent a modest vehicle, choosing a blue one. They also told Leopold's chauffeur they lied to him, telling him the brakes on the Willie's night needed fixing. That way he wouldn't wonder about the rental. They also rented under a false name, Morton Ballard. Their alibi had something to do with carousing all night with drunken girls, and they rehearsed it over and over to make sure they had the same story, just in case the slim chance they were ever questioned. 
Babe and Dickie were brainy kids. They had each skipped grades and started college by the age of 15. One of them was about to go to Harvard Law School, but if you do murder, you will get your law school um, acceptance rescinded, which they would find out. They were novice killers, so they weren't as thorough as they thought. The boys had a short list of potential candidates, all sons of their parents' wealthy friends. They chose 14-year-old Bobby Franks solely because he was the last to leave school that day and he was alone. They waited for him near the schoolyard and lured him into the car by offering him a ride home so he wouldn't have to walk. Then they drove a few blocks and bludgeoned him to death. The corpse was found in the woods later that evening with a pair of expensive horned-rimmed glasses lying nearby. The cops traced the glasses to a high-end shop that had only sold three pairs. One belonged to Babe Leopold. Babe tried to explain it as a coincidence. He was an avid bird watcher and he must have been in the same wooded area a few days before where the body was dumped. The cops didn't buy it. Soon enough, both boys confessed, and they each claimed the other was the ringleader. The families hired de the famed defense attorney, Clarence Darrow, the lawyer who would go on to defend John Scopes, the teacher sued by the state of Tennessee in 1925 for teaching evolution to public school students. For the Leopold Loeb case, Darrow turned to science, too. His mission was not to prove the boys' innocence, they had already pleaded guilty, but to get them life sentences instead of the death penalty. The murder was quickly dubbed the crime of the century. Newspaper men staked out the homes of the Leopolds and Loeb's, they packed the courtroom. The case would years later inspire four films, one starring Orson Welles, another directed by Alfred Hitchcock, a few books, some fiction, some nonfiction, and one play. The driving question though, and this was the 1920s, the driving question of all the newspaper reports and the films and the novels, something on everyone's mind, was what had compelled these two boys that seemed to have everything, education, money, connections, to toss it all away for an afternoon of gruesome adventure. What was the motive? The media stoked curiosity. Had the boys been emotionally neglected? Oh, they blamed Babe's mother because she hired, they said, a flirtatious German governess. They said that the other mom was so involved with charity work that, you know, she hired a nanny, which you shouldn't have done. They said that um, the public learned that the two boys were occasional lovers. They said that might be the reason, as if homosexuality leads to murder. Um, they blamed, um, they said the boys were petty thieves because, Dickie Loeb once pinched money from a lemonade stand he had with a friend. But all of these things, you know, really, you know, they were implying some sort of moral depravity. But none of it seemed to work. But yet, there was one theory, one theory that seemed to explain their deviant behavior. It was a newfangled notion gaining attention in medical journals. The answer lay in the science of endocrinology. So, I'm not gonna read any more from the chapter, but I'll just tell you that in the 1920s, endocrinology was exploding. We had isolated estrogen, progesterone, we would soon be isolating testosterone. There was tons of now this mind-body stuff, and people were wondering, you know, what, you know, what were, how, how were hormones controlling the brain? 
there was also some wacky things going on. I mean, there was great science in the 1920s, and then we had, like, Lydia Pinkham stuff was still for sale. We also had this Dr. Charles Brinkley, who was in Kentucky at the time. He was a doctor because he bought his medical degree in Italy, which you could do in the 1920s. Um, but he had no background at all, but he bought a farm, and people could go to his farm and choose their goat testicle. He had a goat farm, and he would he would remove the testicle of your choice and implant it in you in his kitchen. His, his second wife, he fired, he fired, he did, he fired and divorced his first wife because she wasn't along with him for the game. And then he, he, his nurse ended up marrying him. Um, and he did the operations in his um, kitchen table. What really helped his success was the publisher of the LA Times had it done and said he's never felt better, it boosted his libido, so he wrote articles. Anyhow, he, he's like the best charlatan that ever existed. This was going on in the 1920s. There was all sorts of things that you could buy that were saying helping with your adrenal glands. Whatever gland you had, there was stuff that you could buy. Also at the same time was a guy named Dr. Lewis Berman. And I go on a little bit more about him in the book, but I'll just tell you, if Dr. Berman were alive today, he would have a million Twitter followers, a billion, probably a billion, even though I don't know what that is, but he would have a billion Twitter followers and he'd have his own television show. Dr. Berman, and he's, he wasn't at this trial, but he fed a lot of the theories leading into it. He was an associate professor at Columbia. He was a member of all the established elite societies. He published a slew of scientific articles, and he did some good things. He isolated the parathyroid glands. Those, those um, regulate calcium. But he was also a great self-promoter and an audacious extrapolator. And I think he got a little into just the fame of it all. He published a book that you know told you like what diet you could be on a hormone diet. He said he could look at you and just tell you what your hormone balance was. He went back into history and said Abe Lincoln was very pituitary, Oscar Wilde was very thymus. His aim, his aim was to go into schools. He believed that murderers and deviants had, it was all because of imbalances in their hormones. So he promoted this theory that let's go into schools measure these kids' hormones when you couldn't measure hormones yet. We couldn't do that till the late 1950s. You couldn't measure hormones yet, but he said, let's go in and measure their hormones, and then we can examine children. If we see that they're on the path to murder or deviance, we can fix them. And he had this thing called the ideal normal, which he said would be tall, smart, handsome, and no need for sleep. <laughs> he also claimed this, that women who, who had irregular periods, which is practically every woman, um, lacked female hormones and would become manly or, as he put it, aggressive, dominating, and here's the scary thought, even perhaps enterprising and pioneering. <laughs> so how did this feed into what was going on? These, the, Dr. Berman did not go to this trial, but they did hire two um, two doctors who, say, who specialized, called themselves hormone experts, to go in and analyze the boys. It was 1924. You have to picture, like, there was reporters, like, stalking. These, these kids were held in the jail. They were stalking and peeking in. These two hormone experts came, and they brought with them an X-ray machine, because in those days, you know, your pituitary gland in your brain controls a lot of your hormones. We couldn't measure hormones, but if they took an X-ray of your brain, 
If they saw that the bones that held the pituitary in it, if it looked wide, it could mean that you had a tumor and that was messing things up. They brought with them something I can barely pronounce called a metabolometer. It looks like the thing in my boiler room at home and somehow that, the boys breathe into it, would measure their hormones somehow. Then they analyzed, they were psychiatrists also and they talked to the boys. They gave the judge, this wasn't a trial by jury, the, it was just the judge deciding their sentencing. They gave the judge a 300 page, 80,000 word report. I'm not gonna read the whole thing tonight, nor is it in my book, um, but it is online. Um, they said that Babe Leopold had a calcified pineal gland. We now know that that gland has something to do with your circadian rhythms. At the time, in the 1920s, it was thought that it was a gland that had to do with morality. Dickie Loeb, they said, had multiglandular disorder, which was just, I guess, a way of saying he was completely messed up. And basically, the judge said, and he, the judge spoke in very judgy kind of way, um, but I'll paraphrase it. The judge basically said, this is fascinating. This new field of hormone research sounds really exciting, but it's not going to get these two murderers off the hook. So Dickie Loeb, was, they were both sentenced to each got a life sentence plus 99 years. They were they, for murder and for kidnapping. Dickie Loeb was in jail for nine months and then was murdered in jail by a fellow inmate. Nathan Leopold, we would probably now call him a psychopath, Nathan Leopold, being the good psychopath that he was, was released after 34 years for being a model inmate and on good behavior. He moved to Puerto Rico, became a medical technician, he married Trudy Feldman, a doctor's widow, and he died in 1971 and donated his body to science. Um, we don't know. Like, I was thinking, oh, maybe he did have some multiglandular thing. No, no one ever. By that time, no one really cared that much about all this gland stuff and murder, so they never really looked into what his glands were doing, and I just assume he became a cadaver for first-year medical students who probably never even knew the body that they were opening up. But I, I talk more about them and this whole theory. And I, when it is fascinating, because even today we're trying to figure out there is something like neuro law, and we're still driven to try to figure out is it hormones and what you know how does it control behavior and could there be something going on hormonally that make people act one way versus another? The more clues that we gather, the more questions that we raise. The one thing I try to point out in my book is that we tend to think of hormones in silos, like growth hormone makes you grow, testosterone makes your libido, you know, whatever things that we think of as like hormone in one behavior. But thinking them like in silos or like horses in the beginning of a race is really inaccurate. They're more like a cobweb, like all of our hormones are so intertwined and we're learning about more hormones and more hormones that like growth hormone, for instance, affects your insulin, it affects your testosterone, it affects your estrogen. So they're so intertwined that it's very hard to piece, you know, to have a chart and say this is this behavior is due to that and this is due to that. Not to not to even complicate it even more, that we all have unique receptors for hormones. So somebody, some women go on birth control that has progesterone and feel depressed from it because we think of the way progesterone hits the brain and other people feel completely fine and it has to do not just with the level of hormone but with the way your body reacts to those hormones. 
So now I want to just shift and go right back to where I started with my grandma, but I mentioned that there was a woman that came up with the way to measure hormones down to the billionth of a gram, and I just want to tell you a little bit about who she was. Um, she worked with a guy named Solomon Burson, so she didn't do this on her own, but she, what, she got the Nobel Prize on her own because he had already died and we don't give out the Nobel Prize posthumously. But I like to tell her story because I just think she's an amazing, remarkable woman. And I didn't get to meet her. She died a few, like about 10 years ago. But I did get to speak to her children. I spoke to a lot of people that worked with her. Her name is Rosalind Yallo. Has anyone here heard of her? Oh, good. Oh, good. Um, I think people should know her name. The people that I spoke to who worked with her across the board said, difficult woman. She would only talk to you if you were as smart as she was, and that was a very small group of people. No sense of humor. Her kids said the same thing. But I said to her daughter, man, I have so much respect for your mom, because this is, I mean, I don't blame her for being difficult. So I'll just tell you a little bit about her. Um, I tell my students when they write about medicine never to use the word revolutionize because you know any everything is like oh new protein that does this tiny little thing it's going to revolutionize medicine no we overuse it but this what they created radioimmunoassay did revolutionize medicine because before radioimmunoassay in the 1960s not that long ago even though they they devised this in 1959 but it didn't become widespread till the end of the 1960s so. 1960, if you thought your kid was too short or growing too fast or something hormonally off, you went to the doctor and it was kind of guesswork. They kind of measured, they kind of took a hunch, you know, maybe they'd see like the x-ray of your head and see if there was a tumor, but other than that, there was no measurement. After radioimmunoassay, they could measure minute, minute little nanograms of hormones. Not only that, it's the same technique that we use to measure anything in the body that we thought wasn't measurable. We wouldn't have been able to isolate HIV virus without a technique like radioimmunoassay. You know, we've modernized it since those days. The fertility business wouldn't exist. Cancer markers, all this stuff, anything that we used to not be able to mark, we can do now because of this. So who was Rosalind Yallo? She was a poor girl. Her parents were immigrants from Russia who grew up in New York City, went to public school, went to Hunter, a public college, graduated tops in her class from college in physics, and said to her teacher, like, I love science. This is what I want to do. I want to go on and study more. And her teacher said to her, Rosalind, this is the 1940s. I mean, maybe you shouldn't say that. But she did say this. Don't you think being a secretary for a scientist makes more sense? And so she did. She became a secretary because she had no options. Nobody would support her to go on to graduate school. So, but she became a secretary for a scientist at Columbia University, knowing she could take free classes. So she said to her boss, I'd love to take free science classes. And he said, don't you think stenography makes more sense for a woman? So eventually, and she said this to her biographer, and I always felt that Rosalind did have a little bit of a sense of humor. Eventually, she said to her biographer, they had to have a world war just so I could get a PhD. Because of World War II, it was the 1940s, there were a few spots for women in these PhD programs because they couldn't fill them up. So Purdue University called Hunter and said, look, we have two openings. Um, but we've got a problem. She's a woman and she's Jewish. We don't want to waste her time with her. Do you guarantee you'll give her a job after? And Hunter said, well, we can't guarantee. You know, it takes a long time to get a PhD. 
So Purdue rescinded the offer, and University of Illinois reluctantly took her. They had one spot, they took her. She met her husband there, who was also from New York. She got her PhD in five years, he got his in six. He got his job before her, do the math of that one. Um, according to Lauren, I'm not sure it's true, but I like the story, so I'll just keep spreading it. Um, she, this is true, she got her first, she got a job at the Bronx VA. What I'm not sure, but it's kind of funny, is that um, they gave her an old janitor's closet as her lab, and it's that lab that she ended up with Solomon Burson, who was an MD interested in research, figuring out how to measure hormones. Their very first paper that led to the science of this basically showed that insulin created an immune response. And you know, the original insulin, if you know people that had diabetes years ago that took bovine or pork um, insulin, some of those people did become like, have these allergic reactions to them or reacted against the insulin. Now it's all synthetic, so we don't. But um, they, they sent this paper out all over to the top journals because it was a breakthrough and she knew it and they knew where they were going with it. Like they knew this was like Nobel worthy, eventually we're gonna measure hormone stuff and it was rejected across the board. Because science editors are people too and what they were saying just went against, the thinking was that hormones don't elicit an immune response. They don't do that much, they're not, there's too small. Eventually they were able to convince one science editor to publish it but they had to take the word antibody away, they had to say globulin. Um, but she did, in her very last talk she gave, she ended up getting the Nobel, she became famous, she traveled around the world. The very last talk that she gave in her old age was to a group of third grade students in New York City. And she said to them, if you do science right and you stick to your data, like don't cave when other people tell you you're wrong. You have the data, stick with it. And save all your rejection letters because one day you can use them as part of your exhibit in the Nobel Prize ceremony, which she did. <laughs> so I tend to think she did have a sense of humor. How can you not admire a woman like that? You may not have wanted to work in her lab, although the people that liked working with her were just as smart, they got along. But if you weren't quite as smart, she was quite the intimidating person. So. I just want to end up so we have time for some questions. I just want to talk about little takeaways from the book and a few things that I touch on, which I don't have time to get into tonight. I would say that the takeaway from my book, or what is this whole book about, is that there are some brilliant and compassionate scientists and doctors who are doing and have done research that have planted the seeds that have grown into this strong tree of endocrinology. It's helping us to understand our bodies in ways that we never thought were possible. It's paving the way for new treatments and cures. But along the way, ever since the beginning, there have been those who have been grabbing at the low-lying fruit, taking hints from research. It doesn't come out of anywhere. Taking hints from research and extrapolating it way too far preying off these fears about our desires to get younger and better and more libido and more whatever and marketing these wacky hormone therapy. Some are dangerous, some just cost a lot of money. It went on in the 1920s, it's going on now. We laugh at the hormone diet book, there's hormone diet books now. There's stuff you can get online that's claimed to have all these kind of hormones in it and I don't know if they're in it or if it's just water, but there's all the cures today. So I hope when you read the book, you'll be able to understand like who the heroes are and maybe avoid some of the hucksters. 
So some of the things I get into, I have a chapter on transgender. Um, I do talk about children who identify as transgender. My, my chapter focuses on mainly a friend of mine um, because I felt that he was so articulate in terms of his transition and, and at the age of, he's 58 now, at the age of 58 he can go back and look at his history and understand sort of how, how he came to realize this and understand. Um, what do we know about people who identify as transgender. We do think it's real. Now that every time there's a transgender clinic opening, there's wait lists of people to go in. Do we know that it's one hormone or another? No, there's no blood test for this. There's research going on to try to figure out what is it in a transgender identity. A lot of people in the transgender community, rightly so, are very worried about this research. We're not gonna stop it because we wanna understand and the doctors doing it wanna understand. People that identify as transgender worry that one day they're gonna go to a clinic and someone's gonna draw blood and say, no, I'm sorry, you failed. This isn't the way you actually identify yourself as. So there's, there's, it's, it, this is really sort of at the forefront of what's going on in endocrinology. Um, for people going through it, it's very difficult if you have a child who identifies as transgender because you don't wanna start giving them therapy that you think they may not need, but on the other hand, you don't want to prevent them or you don't want them to go down a track. We know that the suicide rates are so high. So it's, it's a very difficult situation now, and I, but on the good side, there's more research and there are more compassionate doctors helping these children. Hormones and hunger. Um, for some people, all the willpower in the world is not gonna stop them from eating. There's people that have defects in leptin, and that's, the, that's, the, um, that's spewed from your fat gland. We never thought fat glands spewed hormones. They do, just like in the quiz. They spew some of, of the hormones, they spew leptin. Leptin's an appetite suppressant. Like after you eat, your leptin will go up. So um, we know that people that have a rare genetic defect and don't have any leptin, they are voraciously hungry all the time. What this is telling us, which is fascinating, isn't just about obesity, it's about drives. It's not that their, their metabolism is different, it's that they're driven to eat, which is, so it shows how hormones can control your drive. For people that have a leptin defect, we can now help them with leptin. For those of us that just wish our appetite were a little less on certain times, you can't just get a little extra leptin and it helps you. You have to have that defect. But yes, there is a leptin diet book out there. I found it. There is one. I don't recommend it. Um, but you know, every, uh, there's always those seeds that say, wow, this is going to bring us to something. But it is helping us understand metabolism and hunger and appetite. When I have audiences of all women, I can go really deep into menopause, but I talk about it in the book. One fun fact, the only other mammal that we think goes through menopause is the killer whale, which isn't surprising to those of us who've gone through menopause. Um, but I do go through sort of what we think now about hormone replacement therapy and a lot of the flip-flops, or what we think were flip-flops, but kind of was just creeping along advances of knowledge. Um, two chapters on testosterone, um, because I look back in the history of when we isolated testosterone, and there's all this stuff now. I, un I had to, like, watch a lot of sports just to speed through and see all the, like, because I don't usually, but I wanted to see the testosterone commercials um, for the, all the gels available. Um, so the punchline of the chapter is, if you really are really low in testosterone, which means getting two blood tests in the morning from an accredited lab, um, and you get testosterone to put you back into the normal range, you will feel better, you will feel stronger and more energetic, and you'll think better, and it'll boost your libido. 
if you're within that normal range, going from like low normal to a little higher, the studies haven't shown it does much. Um, when I say getting your blood test from an accredited lab, everyone assumes, well, of course, like we're in America, you're just gonna go. No, actually, there's a lot of places that you can just go and you have no idea where they're sending your blood. And they will say to you, oh, you're low in testosterone, and here, buy this. So you actually, how do you know it's accredited lab? You can go on the CDC's website, or you could just ask. I mean, I think that if you're in like Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and you go to someone who says, oh, like I send my labs to Penn State, that sounds like a normal thing to do, but if they say I'm sending it to a lab in California, you have to think like, why are you sending it all the way out there when there's probably labs right here that are accredited? So that could be a clue that you might wanna check what's the name of that lab, let me go online and see if it's accredited. Um, and then I think I just wanna end with one Rosalind Yallo quote going back to her, because people would say things like, oh, she always wore her Nobel laureate necklace all the time. Like, big deal, I think I would if I won the Nobel. But her kids said that's not true. And they also, other people said ever, ever since she won the Nobel, she would sign her name, Rosalind Yallo, Nobel Laureate. And again, I mean, think about what you put under your email. Let's all just think about that for one moment. Like, Nobel Laureate, you could put that under your name. Um, but her kids said, oh no, they didn't do that. But what is true is that behind her desk, she said, she had a sign that said, in order for a woman, to get as far or to make it as much as a man does, you have to work twice as hard and twice as long. And everyone's like, oh yeah, I've heard that, that expression. But Rosignalo added this. Fortunate, you know, the expression was, in order to be just as good as a man, a woman has to work twice as hard. But then she added, fortunately, that's not difficult. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm gonna end with that. I'm gonna end with, and I'm happy to open up questions to yeah. any, yeah, We're other things a, I intend We're gonna have a few on. minutes for some questions. So if you have a question, just raise your hand and I'll come around with the mic. I came a little late, so I don't know whether you talked about your teaching, but you mentioned when you uh, work with students on writing about medicine. What, what is it that you do with them? <laughs> so, um, well, at Yale I teach an undergrad course. It's in the English department. I mean, I work with medical students too, and I think, um, well, what I do with medical students is a lot of it is one-on-one. -on -one. We read, they write essays, they reflect on things. I think, I'm not a therapist, but I feel like I'm giving them therapy. <laughs> like, we just like, oh, you're not memorizing facts. So, and I'll edit things and that they do as well. My undergraduate class, is in the department, is in the little section, English 121, that's like writing about professional and, I forget the name, professional and something, whatever it's called. Um, but there's, <laughs> there's legal writing, there's travel writing, and mine's medical writing. And the thought was, I devised the syllabus with a colleague of mine. The thought was, writing's writing. I mean, clear writing is clear writing, but we would lure some of the sciencey kids who might think like, ugh, I don't wanna take a writing class. But then maybe they will because we're gonna be reading like New Yorker pieces that talk about medical issues. Um, so I think the theme of my class is knowing your audience. So it's not that, oh, writing for a lay public is the best way to write. It's if you write scientist to scientist, oh, then you can shove a lot of information in one sentence and you can be concise and you don't have to say, let me explain to you the ramifications and what this means. And then when you write for a lay audience, you have to get out all the jargon 
and understand the ramifications and understand understand also the humanity of it that if you're that when you're writing about diseases that there could be a patient reading what you're writing um, and we they have the opportunity to interview patients and interview doctors um, I get a lot of pre-meds so I think it's nice for them to see illness from another point of view so. I just wanted to know I, I can almost get it from the way you're talking, but what was that moment that you thought you wanted to write the book? What uh. actually motivated you to do that? Well, my first book, I'll tell you the real stories, my first book was on history of childbirth. And the reason why I wrote that book, though I do have four children and I don't have, the, and I had, relatively speaking, compared to other women, really easy pregnancies and really easy deliveries, so it wasn't like I had this major trauma that I thought I had to write about. The reason why I got into that book is I'm very interested in like how the science and society and the clashes, and sometimes it actually works together. So I was very interested in how science works and doctor-patient communication. And I gravitated towards OBGYN for that book because I thought it's very different when you're a healthy person, like you're just saying, I want to get pregnant, I need advice, versus if you're in pain or if you're suffering, you tend to say to the doctor, I don't care how much like you know, we're against paternalistic medicine, but you're in pain. At a certain point, you're like, okay, do whatever you want. But there was women with agency when they're healthy and they're going to have a baby. So then I focused on that, which led me down to being fascinated with sperm and egg and all the things we know and don't know. And I had, and I really then got into looking at estrogen and progesterone and all these hormones, which my editor at the time was like, this is interesting stuff. It's not about making babies. This is hormones. Save that. You'll do another book on that. So that's how this book sort of came out of extra research I did for the first book. And then um, I don't touch on every single hormone. There's so many, and I don't write about every, you know, that there's, there's a limit to how much people want to carry around in a book. But what I tended to focus on is looking at, like, what was going on in the 1920s that affected the endocrinology. Like, I sort of do it chronologically in terms of what research was going on and what was going on in society that had something that that affected that the way we did our research and the way patients wanted certain things so that's how i framed this book yes how would you assess the medical profession's understanding and fluency in the process of science. So are doctors scientists uh, or, are oh, they doctor. or are they mechanics? Uh, well, it depends. You know, it's interesting. It really depends on what, I mean, there's, there's people who are PhDs. They're the scientists. Though Solomon Burson was an MD who had a love of science, but I think you know, you have doctors that are real humanists in what they do, and I wouldn't say they're scientists, I would say they're more humanists, and you have some that aren't very humane, and they might be more mechanics. I think it's such a wide field, um, you know, and you read good and bad of what goes on, and I think, it, I think different specialties are different in terms of um, what, how good they are at being scientists versus humanists versus mechanics, but 
I don't know if this answers your question, but I, I write a lot about Harvey Cushing. He's considered the father of neurosurgery, like the best neurosurgeon in the early 1900s. I write about him because he was, as he said, in love with the pituitary gland. So he, he had all these insights into the pituitary gland. When you read about Harvey Cushing, you also read about his assistant who basically comes across like his secretary, this woman Louise Eisenhart, who kept all the notes and the data. Well, it turns out like Louise Eisenhart was the first female neuropathologist. And she didn't just take notes, she did all his data analytics. So I think of Louise Eisenhart as the brains behind the brains. And I would say, hey, Harvey, maybe you're just the mechanic who was really good at removing these tumors. And Louise did all the brain work behind you, but made you look good. So I think it varies from specialty to specialty. But I do think, I mean, medicine definitely is more of an uncertain science. And I think that's what I try to get across. I'm actually writing an essay about this now, about the struggles of writing about medicine and conveying its uncertainty without losing the thrill of it. What I like writing about medicine is that there's so much we don't know, and there's so much that's shaped by what we assume. Um, and there's so much that isn't hard science. It seems like hard science at the time, but it's, our, it's based on assumptions. Um, so that's what I find fascinating, but it's also challenging when doctors have to say to patients, we're 80% sure, but that means we're 20% not sure. Um, we think, we just took all these blood tests, and we think this, but we don't know everything about the human body. So I think there's a lot of judgment that goes on. Okay, this, this was fascinating, oh, thank, thank you. you. Uh, how much endocrinology is a medical student exposed to in medical school, and can you speculate on how much endocrinology the average GP is familiar with? I think medical students probably get more. We didn't get that much. I mean, we, you know, people would say, like, when I was going through pregnancy, people would say, well, you should know what this is like. You should know when you're going through labor. You've gone to medical school. And I'm like, I'm sorry, no one got up in front of our medical school class and explained that. We didn't learn about menopause. There's a push now. There's a push by endocrinologists to get some basic endocrinology more into medical schools. Menopause, um, fluctuations, what's going on in puberty. Um, a lot of what, I mean, I spent a lot of time with this book speaking with one of my professors who's an endocrinologist, but. We didn't, but he was my professor 30 years ago um, where we didn't do a lot in medical school, but we met for coffee a lot when I was working on the book. So I don't, um, you know, I'm biased because I love the field and I think there should be more. But I also know because I've sat in on medical school curriculum committees where every specialty is saying we should get more of this. I do think that they're probably getting more than what I got. I don't think I got that much. I think. I don't, I, I honestly, we got like the very basic kind of physiology stuff. Um, but unless you went into like endocrinology, you weren't going in deep. Like we learned basics of diabetes. I think we learned a lot about diabetes when I was in medical school, but we weren't learning about menopause. We weren't learning about growth hormone deficiency. Unless one of my medical school classmates was here and was like, oh, you just don't remember, but I don't <laughs> But we did learn a lot about diabetes. But to me, I think that. Like, I think if you had asked me as a medical student, what do you know about endocrinology? I would say a lot. We learn about diabetes all the time. But that's only one small part. But there's been a push to teach more. Can we give a round of applause for Dr. Epstein, please? Mm -hmm.
You have been listening to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore author reading podcast. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button to keep up to date on all our newest author talks. After every event, there are limited quantities of signed copies of the featured books. Don't forget to grab your copy today. If you would like more information on Midtown Scholar Bookstore, please visit midtownscholar.com. The Midtown Scholar Bookstore author reading podcast is a free podcast and does not own the rights to any of the readings.